is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman, another L.A. City Council member charged with corruption. We'll go in-depth into whether L.A. is a crooked city. And the Federal Reserve did nothing today. And that is big news. Also, baby boomers seem to have it all, and that's a negative for younger generations. We'll explain. But we start with corruption and alleged corruption at, uh, at Los Angeles City Hall. Derry Schrago is a political strategist and USC professor. Thanks for being with us. Sure. Thank you for having me. Well, it does seem uh, at times anyway uh, that uh, this city, Los Angeles, is endlessly plagued with one corruption scandal after another. Uh, either somebody has been convicted or somebody has been charged or somebody is about to be charged. Uh, why does this seem to be the case? And is it an accurate perception? Well, I think it's clearly accurate. I mean, we've got four members of the city council who uh, have undergone criminal investigation and are at various stages of being criminally charged. Um, so, you know, those facts speak for themselves. I will tell you that, um, you know, I spent much of my or misspent much of my adult life in politics and I'm a fifth generation Californian. And I just never, ever had a sense that L.A. was a dirty city. I mean, I just didn't. Uh, you know, Chicago probably comes in number one in terms of reputation. But you look at what's going on in places like Philadelphia and Atlanta and New York. And, and so I always had a sense that, well, they've got real problems. But but in L.A., we just don't. It turns out that's that's not really accurate. Um, our reputation, at least in the past, I thought was uh, uh, notwithstanding the movie Chinatown, for example, was as being a pretty clean place. Is there a problem of uh, who's watching the watchers? Is that why we keep running into this situation? Well, I've thought about this a lot, um, obviously, before uh, the latest news now with current price. And uh, and, and I because and I, it concerns me. I mean, you know, I've spent a lot of time in, 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 in the world of politics and, and most voters think politicians are dirty. They just do. The common line you hear is that, that, that voters think politicians are all lining their own pockets. Uh, but that has not been my experience. And I think that what's going on is that at the local level, at the city level, the decisions that get made by somebody, in this case the city council, are very uh, have very concrete, tangible uh, financial impact on on uh, a lot of players, notably developers when it comes to land use decisions, but also on city contracts. And I think there's just a, a, a temptation on the part of some individuals who hold those local city offices um, to succumb to the to the um, wiles of people who are going to gain advantage from uh, decisions that they make. So is there a practical solution? Of course, people can always vote for somebody else, uh, but, you know, there's no guarantee that the person they vote for isn't going to end up doing the exact same thing as the previous person. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that the answer lies in in uh, doing things differently. I mean, you could say, well, what we need to do is elect people who aren't going to aren't, aren't going to you know behave this way. But but, you know, I, I know these four and, and 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 I've always thought they were they were, you know, 
straight and clean. I mean, I really did. I just never had any sense that this was going on. And and I and I look at people who clearly are well credentialed and and well intentioned when they started out, and they wind up in this kind of situation. So the answer has to be structural. I think you're right. And you know, there's in, in see LA is different. We have a relatively weak mayor. The other cities I was talking about have a much stronger mayor. And and I suppose you have to look at pardon me. You have to look at how decisions are made that have financial impact. On, on on entities like developers and city contractors and and maybe take them out of the the political realm as directly as they are now. You know, I, perhaps you just touched on something uh, because you're quite right. Uh, unlike New York and Philly and Chicago, uh, by design, the mayor of Los Angeles is is relatively weak, and and part of the reason for that, right, was because of the feeling, you know, century or so ago that they didn't want to invest too much power in a single person. So this is a city that is essentially run by the city council. But has that actually inadvertently led to, therefore, city council members now having too much power, at least in certain spheres, and the temptation, therefore, too great? Yeah, I th- no, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's very insightful. The other cities um, probably got reputations for being um, less than clean because they were, uh, at least back in the old days, run by political machines. I mean, the daily machine in Chicago, the, you know, everybody knew about that. We don't have that. And you're right. We don't have that because because we didn't want to have that kind of a political machine running or a strong mayor running the city. But nonetheless, the temptation is still there. And I think that there are people who benefit from city decisions. Again, you know, it's not exclusively developers, but developers have a lot of a lot at stake here and also city contractors who will find where the locus of decision making is and try to influence it. And and, and that raises a question of where else could those decisions be made? We've tried very hard to clean up campaign contributions. I mean, we have a very heavily regulated campaign contribution law in 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 L.A. And maybe we need to rethink how we let all the city business uh, in the former contract. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Derry Schrago, political strategist and USC professor. Right now, though, uh, Politico is reporting that President Biden and his top aides are staying silent. You said it, you actually said it very well before, and you didn't even use a word. What, no. what did you say? Maybe? I said President Biden is telling Democrats to shh on it, Trump. It, it, exactly. Uh, so here to try to figure this out and whether that is a good or bad strategy, Mike Lux is a Democratic strategist and former member of the Clinton and Obama administrations. Mike, thanks for being with us. Well, Mike is quiet, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, I hope, I hope is, you didn't think that we were shushing him. Yeah. Mike, are you there? Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, there he is. Oh, sorry, you good, are. good. You guys, you weren't uh, being quiet because you were ordered to. Shh, were you? Right, Biden didn't. T- <laughs> Biden didn't say, right. don't, "Mike, don't talk." Yeah. No. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so is that a good strategy uh, to to for the White House? And uh, I, I guess, according to the political report, uh, the word being dispersed to uh, other Democrats uh, to kind of keep it on the DL about their feelings on the indictment uh, and the uh, charges and arraignment and the forthcoming trial of Donald Trump. Is that a good idea? Uh, well, first of all, I, I think that there's it's different between the White House and uh, the administration officials versus other Democrats. Um, uh, it's a good it's, it's a good idea for sure for the White House and the administration. Look, when, when I was in the when, when I was in the White House, 
uh, in in days of yore. Uh, uh, we we had no dealings with Justice Department uh, uh, in, in terms of the investigations that their Public Integrity Office was running, and we had we had investigations of various members of the administration, various members of Congress uh, who were suspected uh, of different things. Uh, we had absolutely no contact uh, with Justice Department. We we were uh, we were instructed to have no contact. It, it, it was an iron kind of thing, um, and and a, as well as no comment uh, in the press, uh, because uh, DOJ has to be on its own on on uh, criminal investigations. You can't have uh, a, a political. Uh, the political side of the administration, uh, uh, you, you know, talking to Justice Department about those things. But there um, is there is the other side of this, too. I mean, I get I get the high road and and obviously it is correct ethically for the administration to not comment on this, to avoid the appearance that it's the administration doing this yeah. to Donald Trump. But as you know, uh, Donald Trump and his supporters are already saying uh, Joe Biden trying to have me arrested. Joe Biden's putting me in right. jail. So right. they're going to they're going to say that anyway. Would it not behoove President Biden to not comment on the investigation itself, but to at least push back on some of the claims and point out what the facts are? Karine Jean-Pierre, I just watched her today in the press briefing, uh, did not push back at all on the question of, uh, you know, Trump says that Biden's trying to lock up uh, Donald Trump. Uh, what do you say to that? And she says no comment. And I thought to me, maybe you say something that is the fact is, no, the grand jury issues those charges. They looked at the evidence right. and the charges were warranted. Uh, Joe Biden is not arresting Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I think I think for now, uh, I think no comment uh, is is appropriate. Um, but but I do think other Democrats, you, you know, my my view of things is that uh, you're you're going to want to have other uh, other Democrats engage uh, and, and get the facts out that uh, this is this is a this is a completely different uh, thing than um, that than than some of the other uh, cases that they're talking about that. Um, uh, you know, I, I think getting, telling our story on it is something that's eventually going to happen. Uh, but not all of this, not, not, not everything that needs to be done needs to be done today or tomorrow. Yeah, I was going um, to ask you, Mike, I mean, let's go a little bit ahead into the future and, and, uh, Joe Biden has already said that he's running and, uh, it appears at least as we speak that Donald Trump is at the moment anyway, the likely Republican yeah. candidate. Uh, how how does this go down? How do they have a a presidential race with these two men running against one another? How does Joe Biden avoid mentioning the charges and maybe even an ongoing trial, uh, depending on when it happens, of his opponent? I, I don't even see how that's possible. I, look, I think it's going to be a, a, a an utterly challenging. Uh, situation, Some, one one that we've never had in our country's history, uh, and it, it is sad that Donald Trump is so uh, is so corrupt that the that the DOJ felt like they had no choice uh, but to uh, uh, but to indict him and 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 to go to trial. Um, but but that's that's what the folks in in those offices felt uh, was legally mandated for them to do. They they were following the law. Um, 
how how we deal with the weirdness of all of this <laughs> is is a hell of a question. I I, I mean, uh, we're going to have to figure it out as we go along. I think one of the reasons that nobody's commenting right now is uh, we 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 want to take our time, sort of uh, figuring out uh, uh, how to talk how to talk about this if if to talk about it. I think Biden is going to continue to not uh, talk about the trial and the case. Um, but I think other folks may engage over time and probably should engage over time. All right. Uh, Mike Lux, thank you so much. Democratic strategist and former member of the Clinton and Obama administrations. Yeah. And also, you know, think about it. And, and we should probably do a story on that uh, in the coming days or weeks. I mean, you know, jury selection. How do you yeah. keep a jury pool from being tainted during a presidential campaign when it's it is very possible that the defendant that the jury pool is it has to eventually make a, a decision on that person's fate right. is also running for president. How do you how do you do that? And and it turns the presidential ballot in 2024 into a simple question. Trump prison or White House? And still ahead, baby boomers. They are enjoying life. Oh, isn't it so sweet? More <laughs> while younger generations are tightening their belts if they can afford belts. <laughs> they can afford a belt. And they, they may not be able to. I think we can tell which side you're on, Charles. I'm not sure. I have a belt. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. I do. <laughs> right now, though, the Federal Reserve announced today, you know, sometimes you hear a truth and you just have to stop for a moment and acknowledge how true that is. Right. Charles has a belt. I have a belt. There's no question about it. The Federal Reserve announced today it is pausing an interest rate hike for the first time in over a year. Joining us to talk about it is Paul Nolte, financial expert who regularly follows what the Fed does. Paul, thanks for joining us. Do you have a belt? Uh, yes, and the Fed is not tightening theirs. Ah, there you so, go. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Today. So is this uh, how good of a sign is this, although they did couch it in terms of, but uh, stay tuned because there will be more down the road. Yes, maybe. And the reason I say that is because I think really what they're looking at is this is going to buy them uh, another month. It's going to get them a little bit more time to kind of assess the data. Is inflation coming down? The data reports that we got, the CPI, PPI were better this month. Employment, a little bit worse. But the economy is still generally doing fairly well. So this gives them a little bit of time to say, okay, well, let's let's see what happens here before we have to move again, or maybe we don't. So... I think it's actually not a bad move on their part to stand pat after being as aggressive as they have been over the last year. So how come investors, at least in terms of the Dow, how come the market went down? You would think investors would be just overjoyed that at least for the time being, interest rates are going to stay where they are. Yeah, you know, it, it really does depend on what you're looking at. I mean, the Dow and the well, really the S&P is unchanged from where it was when the Fed started hiking rates a year ago. So we've added five and a half uh, percent on the total interest rates and the markets are relatively unchanged. Today, technology did very well and a lot of the, the banking side, uh, a lot of the interest rate sensitive parts of the market didn't do so well. And that is more reflective of the Dow. So the further away you get and closer you get to technology, which is the NASDAQ, they did actually very well today. So is this a sign that if you're in the market for a house or a car, go ahead and buy it now before future uh, rate hikes come down? <laughs> I'm asking I, for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a lot of friends that are asking me the same question. 
Um, and so what, when I talk to them about that and say, you know, just find the house, if you can afford the payment, because really you're not looking at, oh, I'm buying a million dollar house or half a million dollars, you're buying a payment. And if you can still afford the payment today, buy the house. If interest rates come down a year from now, two years, three years from now, refinance. So if you're in, you're in, and housing prices generally go up over the course of the next 10, 15, 20 years. Um, so it, it does become a good investment from the long term. Again, it's just being able to swing the current payment. As long as you're able to do that, it shouldn't stop you from buying a house. So here's the question that we've been asking seemingly forever, or at least for the past year or so. Uh, the Fed has been trying to have this sort of soft landing, right, uh, so that we uh, tame or they tame inflation at the same token they don't plunge the country and perhaps the world into a deep recession. And we've had various experts expressing their views on whether that is likely or not. Where do you think we stand on that? Does it look as if they're going to succeed in that soft, so-called soft landing, or should we buckle our seatbelts? You know, it's it's interesting. They, they kind of sort of engineered a soft landing in the mid-90s, but to land the economy softly is kind of like taking a 747 and trying to land it on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> it's just not really, it's not good. The Fed will raise rates until something breaks. And we've seen some breaking in the banking sector. We saw some breaking in, in Britain almost a year ago with, with some of the issues that they've had around some of the long bonds. I, there's more yet to come, I think. And remember, too, that the Fed was actually cutting interest rates when we were going into the recession in 08 and cutting interest rates when we went into the recession in 2000. So, you know, that that's what happens after something breaks. We haven't gotten to that point yet. And I think it's going to be a, a tough road ahead for the Fed to softly land. Um, and it requires a lot of help from the government, too. Remember, over the last couple of years, we've poured a ton of money into the economy uh, from the pandemic. And that that hasn't really all been pulled back yet. That's still floating around in the economy. All right. Uh, Paul Nolte, financial expert, uh, regularly follows what the Fed does, telling us what it means today. Now, uh, a little bit later, we're going to talk about uh, boomers versus millennials. Mm -hmm. And we're going to uh, have a kind of a scorecard yeah. uh, on who's doing better, the uh, millennials or the uh Boomers, you know, who's tightening their belt? We're back right. to that belt again. Why have the belt, yeah. and, and who has a belt? Right. And who doesn't have a belt? You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A new report reveals the unseen struggles faced by the LGBTQ plus community. Despite some progress, some new stats about mental health and substance abuse are alarming. With us to talk about it all is Dr. Jeremy Kidd, a psychiatrist from Columbia University, who has worked on other studies to help the LGBTQ plus community. Dr. Kidd, thanks for being with us. Robin Charles, thank you so much for having me. So what do the uh, new stats show? What picture is it painting? In some ways, this new report is showing a continuation of a trend that goes back to 2015 when this survey began asking about sexual identity. And that's that there are disparities, notable disparities in mental health and substance use related problems among lesbian, gay and bisexual individuals relative to heterosexual adults in the U.S. Um, and this cuts across a number of substances, including tobacco, alcohol, stimulants. And really importantly, in, in this data, uh, we get a glimpse of what the opioid epidemic 
is is and how that's impacting LGB communities as well. What's driving that? Um, so we know from so this this survey isn't designed to sort of comment on the why of these disparities, but we know from other research that LGB individuals experience an additional stress, sometimes referred to as minority stress, that really is a result of societal discrimination and prejudice. And that numerous studies have shown that elevated levels of minority stress place LGB individuals at elevated risk for numerous health problems, including mental health challenges and substance use problems. Does it matter or did the study look at uh, the geography involved? Are, are people more prone in the LGBTQ plus community to suffer these issues if they live in some parts of the country as opposed to other parts of the country? This report didn't break the data out by geography. It's an interesting question. There have been other studies that looked at regional differences in laws and policies, um, particular earlier differences around marriage equality prior to the, the nationwide legalization of same-sex marriage, um, as well as um, other sorts of legislative uh, efforts that negatively impact LGB people and have found that those sorts of negative um, legislative and policy efforts do correlate with higher levels of mental health distress among LGB people living in those states. But this report wasn't able to comment on that. You know, it does uh, feel like to many that uh, the community is being targeted more and more and, and more virulently uh, these days to the point that we've got reports of LGBTQ families moving from uh, red states to blue states, specifically the, the Bay Area of California, trying to go to places where they feel a lot safer. Do you think that if that is real trend, uh, that we will see this trend that the study is looking at uh, also increase? I think that there is, I think that's the worry among a lot of those of us who provide clinical services uh, within the LGB community is that this increase in this, both the increase in um, legislative and policy uh, discussions that negatively impact LGB people, but also the heightened attention and pervasiveness um, with which people even who live in more progressive states are exposed to these messages will begin to drive up rates of, of mental health and substance use Problems. I do. I do think it's important in this in this report, though, to note that the vast majority of lesbian, gay, and bisexual individuals who were surveyed did not report mental health and substance use challenges. And and I think that we, as as researchers and clinicians, would really be um, doing a great service by focusing on what focusing on what helps those individuals be resilient, even in the face of discrimination and prejudice and maybe using that to inform policy interventions to help those who are struggling. All right. Thank you so much. This is Dr. Uh, Jeremy Kidd, psychiatrist from Columbia University. In this corner, baby boomers. In the other corner, millennials. And let's slug it out right here. The big sticking point tends to be money. Bank of America found a significant gap in spending. Now, boomers are enjoying it all. Charles is smiling, while younger generations are struggling. In the boomer corner, we have Guy Baker, managing director at Wealth Teams Alliance in Irvine. In the millennial and everyone else corner, Tatiana Sawyer, a business and financial expert. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. So we're going yeah, to start. To we're, Thank you. We're going to start with a millennial, Tatiana. Uh, why do millennials feel that they are not living the good life and are looking at baby boomers who seem to have it all? 
Well, you know what? I think that millennials are a little bit careful, especially you know, in the last few years, we've kind of all been taken out of our comfort zone. And I think that uh, also it's shifted the the landscape of careers and business and desires and wants and all of that has shifted so significantly that now millennials no longer want, you know, working for somebody 70, 80 hours a week just to put the name on the resume and then have quote unquote and a successful career. Um, more and more I see us wanting family or life first, you know, if you don't have a family of kids and whatever, first and foremost, and then everything else. So it's more about the balance now. And so we're willing to accept less money, but more time with people who matter. Okay. Boomer guy, uh, you know, do boomers, uh, do we have it all that good? Really? Well, we've got a, a, a transfer of wealth that's taking place to the boomer generation that's about twice the GDP, if you if you were to put it into those terms. So this is a demographic issue more than an economic issue in that uh, longevity has pushed out, as we know, uh, health care costs and so many other impacts like on Social Security. So the Boomers are basically reaping the benefits of their family wealth. So are boomers kind of like the locusts eating up the fields and leaving none for the uh, animals that come in? Charles is giving me a dirty look. He's like, what? Uh, <laughs> not a locust. And, 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 <laughs> not calling a locust. you a locust. <laughs> I'm just saying you're locust-like. Uh, eating up the field and leaving nothing for the uh, the generations coming up behind. Well, if they were spending everything, you could probably look at it that way. But I, I don't think the boomers are going wild and crazy in their spending. Uh, in fact, most of the statistics show that uh, they're investing that money. Uh, 50% of the inheritance is in the stock market and in bonds. Only 9% is in real estate. Tatiana, do you think, though, that at, at some point millennials will, you know, economically anyway, come into their own? Maybe it will take them longer than uh, other generations or the boomers, for example. But eventually they're going to come probably into their own. And won't they probably look down on the next generation beneath them and think, oh, those people are not as aggressive as we've been? I think so. And, you know, also another thing that I look at is how the older generation, the boomer generation, typically would give more money or trusts or whatever to the, not their children, but their grandchildren, which is something that I didn't, never could understand because, uh, because I think that if you were to help anybody in life, it should be your kids. Right. And so hmm. um, I definitely think that for our generation, we're looking more at that. We're looking more at um, teaching people, generation that comes after us, teaching them a little bit more of skills and being more careful and more of this and that. And I think that that's the trend and it's going to be the trend going forward. Uh, Guy, you know, boomers had had one thing. We were able to, uh, you know, invest and make our money and find careers in jobs that for millennials and generations coming up behind uh, are finding to be gone. In other words, uh, the radio industry is a good example. It's an industry that's been undergoing changes for the last 20, 30 years, and nobody knows where it's going to go in the future. Millennials, uh, don't you think, are facing that thing as they try to come into their own? They're finding a lot of pathways to making money are not going to be there, and they've got to figure out a whole new way of doing things. Does it make it harder for them and easier for us boomers? 
Well, we definitely are having a transition to a service economy as opposed to a production economy. But I think one of the things you also have to factor in here is that these inheritances going to the boomers is really replacing their retirement uh, dollars that they didn't accumulate while they were supporting their families and you know waited till they were 50, 55 to be able to get started. So there's a you know, there are a lot of very difficult factors that are going on here at the same time. Tatiana, do you think that millennials, uh, you're a millennial, do you resent boomers? <laughs> um, Mom, well, be, on, be honest, be honest. I heard a laugh. So. <laughs> yeah, you, you laugh, so be honest. The only, I guess, area where I resent boomers is uh, being open to technology and to new developments and really staying agile. I think agile has been a buzzword for, you know, for over a decade, but staying agile and being open to things. And I'll give an example. Accounting is a great, a great example uh, with that. You know, when I was starting out in tax in 2010, I was told, no, you cannot work later on weekdays. You have to come in on a Saturday. That's how things are done in the industry. But the reality now, you know, 13 years later, is that accounting enrollment is falling. Nobody wants to slave for accounting firms just for the title, for the name. Nobody wants to kill their health for that. And people just want a better life. And I think that only in that area, I really resent boomers because old school accountants, for example, are really old school. They, they think that the way we've done it for 50 years is the way it should be done for the next 50 years. All right, let's get down to the most important question. Uh, Guy, are you wearing a belt? Tatiana, are you wearing a belt? A belt? Yeah, we, we were talking, <laughs> talking about belt, belt tightening. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about belt tightening A money before. belt? How about that? Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Tatiana, how about you? I don't. Ah, see, you know, we we were making a joke out of it, but it turns out it, it's true. Yeah, you see, yeah. The boomers have belts and the millennials don't. They, they don't. That's why they resent boomers. That's why they resent the belts. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for speaking with us today. That is uh, uh, Guy Baker, a managing director of Wealth Teams Alliance in Irvine, also Tatiana uh, Sawyer, a business now, and financial expert. Now, let's go back to, you You referred to me as a locust. No, I said you were <laughs> no, like you're, you're a saying, locust. No, you're, back, you're backtracking no, no, now. Yeah, I am. No, you were, you were saying that, that, that <laughs> boomers are But if you're a locust, like, I am too. Okay. So because we, we're of a generation. So we can both chew up the field. Exactly. And leave nothing to millennials. Exactly. I'm all for that. Let's do it. In-depth returns tomorrow.